Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the second season of Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear the stories of fashion's most dynamic entrepreneurs in their own words. As the former creative director of billion-dollar juggernaut Supreme, Brendan Babenzian has deep experience in the burgeoning streetwear market. But when he built his own brand, Noah, he did so with the intention of finding measures of success beyond sales and profit. In a fascinating conversation with BOF's Lauren Sherman, we hear how Brendan is seeking to redefine his brand's relationship with consumer behavior while also doing good in the world. People are going to like hold your feet over the fire if you're not all the way right. We never expected to be all the way right. We knew it wasn't possible, particularly for a small company with limited resources. Our version is kind of just saying, look, we're going to make the best product we can make. Once you take greed out of the conversation, it opens up all kinds of incredible opportunities to have an interesting business. But if your primary goal and focus is to make as much money as possible, it pushes all these other things out of the way. You could decide to make something and make less money on it because you just want to see it out in the world. But not if the bottom line rules the day. So here is Brendan Babenzian on what it really takes to create a sustainable global enterprise. To start, I think people are pretty familiar with your story and they know your association with Supreme and all that stuff and that you grew up surfing, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious to know when you were young, what were the kinds of things that were important to you and how did that manifest itself in what you ended up doing for work? I mean, I was a kid, right? So silly things were important. Surfing, skating, girls, (laughs) music. Um, And by extension, clothing played such a huge role in that. And I'm not certain anyone was necessarily aware of it you weren't you weren't really thinking too much about it but you had your own style and you definitely gravitated towards things that sent a message about who you were and in in skating that's always been a very real part of the culture and and same with surf um but i do tend to think that skate as a community is probably more progressive in a lot of ways or at least is now. I think maybe when I came up in the 70s and the 80s, they were kind of equal. Like surf was pretty progressive back then. Like companies were doing really cool stuff and they're trying different ways of advertising and it was all very creative and fun um, because it was just real surfers building these companies. There wasn't really roadmaps for how to do it or anything. They were just out there doing it. And I think their personalities as business owners and designers and creative directors or whatever they were all kind of came through and it was for me like kind of the golden era so it was very basic it was kids stuff like just looking cool or clothes that kind of like showed who you were what music you were into and you know that kind of thing and probably consciously or subconsciously like really trying to not be like everybody else I think that's when I was a teenager, that was probably a big part of my the, the choices I made because I just didn't agree with society necessarily. I don't think I was fully aware of that at the time. It wasn't like this really informed thing. It was more just like, ugh, 
I don't like that. I can't really tell you why, but like, no, you know, like I hate baseball, (laughs) you know, like, so it was just anything that went kind of counter to the normal narrative was really interesting to me. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means anything at all or if it's just lucky for me that that's the stuff I was into because I think that's the stuff that has been the most culturally relevant. You know, certain trends in clothing or certain types of music, you know, skateboarding culturally is, you know, was nothing and now is everything, you know. So it, I don't know if it's a personality thing or, or if it could, I could have just as easily been a full-on jock. I don't really know. When you say that surf culture isn't as progressive as skate culture now, can you talk a little bit about that? What do you mean exactly? I mean, I should probably clarify that that's my opinion because I don't know if there's any real fact behind that, but like <laughs> that's just how it feels to me. Yeah. Um, I think the nature of skateboarding as an actual activity draws very specific types of people to it at least historically when when you really had to like go out on a limb to be a skateboarder when it wasn't popular and when you were kind of an outcast for doing that instead of like say playing a team sport or whatever it really said something about your personality like you know your independence your strength of mind and character um, and I think also to some degree that you were going to be drawn to more creative things because the the creativity that goes into skating just as a as a thing an activity is is incredible like it's an entire sport if you want to call it sport that every single step of the way is in a constant state of evolution things are being invented on it like tricks are invented they're like created out of nothing you know what i mean it's like well what if i put my foot here and i press down here this way and Like, that's crazy. You know what I mean? Like, the creativity that goes into evaluating urban landscapes and taking things and saying, like, well, this is a staircase, but now it's a playground. And, you know, like, there's a banked wall over there or a metal curb and kind of adapting it to your own kind of, like, will in in skating. Um, That takes tremendous vision and creativity. And when I look at the community as a whole you know, skaters from 50s, 60s onward, you know, it becomes fairly obvious. I mean, people who are in skateboarding, they, they're they musicians and they're painters and they're writers and they're illustrators and they're designers. And, you know, some of them are just skaters and they go on to be bankers too. But, like, there's a lot of creativity in the community. Um, and I guess with surfing specifically, in the last 15 years or so, it feels more like, just i mean it's fun like that like that's really whatever i think about it from a cultural standpoint you can kind of throw it out the window cuz the fact is it's fun and if you do it it's fun and that's really all it's about and the other stuff doesn't really enter the conversation as often but since you've asked we'll we'll talk about it and it's like it just doesn't push the boundaries as much you know as skateboarding does um culturally you know it did I think there was a time when surfers would travel and explore. And I think for a long time, you know, and I guess still today, surfers were responsible for, you know, really exploring cultures around the world, like going to places people hadn't been, 
different types of food and everything else. And that's incredible, you know, I mean, and, and surfers for a long time and maybe still are some of the first people to go places besides the people that live there, you know, in search of waves and unridden waves or whatever, you know. But I still think that just skateboarding as a as a culture is just incredibly progressive and draws interesting creative people to it, you know, very organically. Yeah. That's that's super interesting. How did you become a designer and kind of use that I'm not a designer, so I don't think of it like that. I never studied it. I couldn't make a pattern. I can't sew. I mean, it's not, that's not what I am. You know, I, I think it, to say that I am would be like a real disservice to people who spent real time studying and learning and crafting skills. You know, I'm, I'm some weird new thing. You know, what do you, what would you call it? I'm not really sure. You know, like I've, I've made jokes that, you know, people like me are like glorified stylists, you know, um, and I don't know, and and I'm not belittling what I do, you know, like, like you know, Sean Stussy's a hero to me, and you know, like James Jebbia is, you know, it, it, one of the greatest culture, cultural minds that we've seen in a hundred years to recognize what's happening with youth and being able to kind of like capture it and present it, and then at the same time make it a business, which is a whole other conversation. So I, I wouldn't belittle what I do or what people like me do, but I don't think it's, I, I guess there's some element of design, but it just seems like more like a cultural kind of like connectivity, like understanding like, well, here's a shirt and here's what's happening in the world and here's how we feel and here's how we can show it to people and here's how we can make it fun and here's what we can do with the business to grow the business and simultaneously do some good in the world. And, you know, like it's a, it's not design, it's something else. It's, uh, and I don't really quite have the words for what I think it is. What made you decide to start your business and, and to do something on your own and, and use that skill? I think the same reason anybody goes out on their own to do just about anything. Like, you know, one feeling like you had, something important to show the world or share with the world. Um, and in, in my case, I really felt like businesses, generally speaking, were not operating in a responsible manner. Um, they were just, you know, the legacy of capitalism from post-World War II on was if you're successful in business, you're kind of a god, and, you know, that peaked in the 80s and into the 90s. Um, but how you made your money or what happened in the process of you making these, like, millions or billions or whatever and having a yacht and beautiful women around and champagne and all this bullshit, like, it, no one cared why, how, how you got it. And that's a disaster. And we're feeling that now. We're feeling the results of all of that not caring how it happened. And just saying the success itself is the thing. And I just never really believed in that. I feel like, well, how you get there matters. What you do matters. So we wanted to start a business that kind of like operated with that in mind. Um, and, you know, there's many levels. There's that and then there's 
we wanted to make clothing in a slightly different way and wanted to make things that maybe others weren't quite making at the time. Like, So there's a lot of levels. We wanted to talk about music that maybe people weren't talking about or issues that people weren't talking about. And we wanted to use the business as a vehicle to kind of inform people about a variety of things, from really fun things to really gnarly, not-so-fun things, you know? Um, and in the beginning, people were kind of like, well, you can't do all of that at the same time. And that was the push. It was like, well, yeah, we can. <laughs> like, why can't we? So no one does it, but that doesn't mean you can't. And that felt to me, <clears throat> and I think to some degree to Estelle, you know, my wife, as if like, that's like telling us we can't be us, right? This is all the things we are. So why can't we just be ourselves and and put that into our business? So it just felt ridiculous. And that kind of, I think, spurred us on even more. So so when you say responsible and, and building something responsibly, what what kind of practices did you put in from the beginning? And what does that mean to you? Does that mean you know, sourcing dead stock material? Does that mean not making as much as as maybe your wholesale partners want you to make? What well, we did don't that really mean? have... We have a couple wholesale partners. We're not really a wholesale business. Yeah. Um, it, it's probably not as sexy as people would like it to be. Um, it's a variety of things. I think there's a, there's a, a misunderstanding... Because now these buzzwords like sustainability and all this stuff, they're, they're, they're so important to the industry that like people are going to like hold your feet over the fire if you're not all the way right. We never expected to be all the way right. We knew it wasn't possible, particularly for a small company with limited resources. So our version is kind of just saying, look, we're going to make the best product we can make. Um, we're going to make them in countries where we know people are looked after at work, where they're not forced to work long hours, where they get vacation time and health care and all of these things, um, where there's reasonable environmental laws in place so we know that the factories aren't just dumping stuff out the river and the people down in the next town over are getting sick from it and all that. you know. So it's very fundamental, basic stuff that we do. We just make a better product, and we ask people and we talk to people um, about being responsible consumers because I think one of the big issues we're going to see is kind of like we as consumers are incredibly lazy and we want the government to tell the companies what to do and to, to tell the companies, well, now you have to operate like this. And then we go, cool, I can go back to just buying as much shit as I want because now they're making it better and more responsibly. But that's not really the answer. Like It's a big group kind of effort. So we do our part. We make a better product. We ask people to keep it longer. We speak a lot about defying trend and just being kind of like yourself and letting your own creativity come through and not leaning on labels or trends or whatever, um, which would imply that you're much more creative. The people who look good with less are obviously more creative people. And the people who have to wear the latest and the greatest from head to toe, they're just rich. Like, they're not special necessarily creatively in how they dress themselves and present themselves. They just have the money to buy all the latest shit. Um, 
so so that's kind of it and you know we layer on top of that social stuff where if we you know don't like something that's happening in the world we'll try and direct attention to it and if we're directing attention to it then we're definitely directing money to it as well um we we would never talk about something say graphically and then just keep the money <laughs> you know it wouldn't be like save the planet t-shirt and then like don't give any money back to, like that we we don't operate like that every single thing we talk about if it's a social issue or an environmental issue some of that money is definitely going somewhere to help the problem we're talking about um and to be perfectly honest I can't guarantee it's making a difference. I have no idea if it is or isn't really. My suspicion is that if we all did that, things would be better. If every business, every person in business did little things, then the world would be a much better place. I can't prove that. It's theoretical at this point, but I believe in it, so I'm doing it. Have you anecdotally, have you seen more businesses because the the challenging thing is getting every single business to it's a complete change in culture and the way the world operates it's a capitalist society globally making money growth we talk about growth constantly at at bof is growth success now that that's a little unclear but to be successful you need to have company that's profitable, that's making money, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I guess you do if you're talking in business terms and historical business terms. But you can redefine success. If success is just, well, this company is making a ton of money, that's it, end of story. But you can build in other things that define success. Like, well, this company makes less money, but everybody that works there is really happy and enjoying their life. And yeah, we're not making as much money as other companies, but if you factor in people's happiness into the economics of it, then you redefine what success means. How else are you measuring, okay, we're doing well right now? I mean, the fact that we stay in business and continue to be able to make clothing and we continue to be able to expand um, is one very obvious way. But <clears throat> the fact that we're able to do it while we're layering in more and more stuff, you know, improving our supply chains, figuring out ways, you know, we're in the process of fi- testing new packaging because that's always been a big issue for us and for most companies. So as we continue to do more stuff, and help more people or, you know, make more recycled cotton products or use more recycled, you know, plastics materials, you know, and it's not a lot, but each season it's a little bit more, while maintaining a group of people from warehouse staff to store staff to people in the office who seem to be really happy and motivated and enjoying what they do, those are all the levels. So we just look at all of those things. And, you know, I mean, I know for me and, you know, probably for Estelle as well, like the probably the best days we have are the days where we've done something and 
one person or five people or a hundred people are like, I, you know, I'm so happy you guys did that, or whatever it is. You know, last night we had Ben Anderson, who people most people know from Vice. We did a War is Hell graphic, long sleeve tee. And I was like, we can't just put that out and not participate, like give some money back, talk about it. Like we have to go further than just putting out that graphic. So I was like, what if we got like a war correspondent, you know, somebody really great. And I was like, what about that guy, Ben Anderson? And then somebody in my office got a hold of him. He came by and we hung out and talked and he was super cool, um, really lovely. And um, in the process of talking to him, we discovered he'd written a book about you know, his time in Afghanistan. And we were like, okay, cool. So now we, we layered in a blog post about him. He came to the store last night and did a reading and a book signing. And it wasn't huge. It was maybe 40 people. At least six people came up to me after and were like, this is incredible. You know, like, thank you. And even his friend, this guy that came with him was like, you know, Ben often gets really discouraged because he feels like his work doesn't mean anything and the guy's putting his fucking life on the line to bring us stories that a lot of us don't pay attention to. But last night he felt really good about what he does. He, you know, he wrote in my book, he said, thanks for the boost, you know, like, and that's probably like better for us than half the other stuff we do, like those moments, you know, because like, I, I mean, if you're not engaged with people it's kind of like heartless and so you know what I mean it's like that's you're just then you're, like you're just a machine you know and like what's the point well that is what a lot of fashion is now just like very mechanical you know it's funny I would say something very similar to that but in truth I don't really know I don't spend time in their office. I don't really know these people. I don't really know what goes on behind the scenes. I have no idea. I suspect there's probably a lot of really good people who would like to do good things, but because of the size of the organizations, it's incredibly complex. And there's probably some really terrible people too. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure there is. There is in every industry. But, you know, I find myself really like being harsh and critical, but I have to kind of like step back and be like, well, I don't really know. <laughs> you know, like... It could just be too hard today for them to change. And they're a victim of the larger kind of like society and our views on business and success. And now they have to evolve. And maybe we need to like, before we kind of like cast stones, which I'm famous for, mm -hmm. um, step back and kind of like give them the opportunity to evolve and change first. And the companies that don't, well, fuck you. Like, and the companies that do, cool. Like, it's gonna take time. This podcast is delivered by DHL. As the logistics partner of many of fashion's most prestigious businesses, from billion-dollar brands to emerging designers and innovative SMEs, DHL is stitched into the fabric of the $2.4 trillion industry. Present in more than 220 countries and territories, DHL provides tailored and comprehensive go-green logistics and business solutions that enable fashion businesses to grow sustainably as they expand domestically and into new international markets. For more information about DHL and how it can help your business increase transparency around your environmental impact, minimize logistics-related emissions, and offset what cannot be avoided, visit logistics.dhl. 
Do you see a real difference in the way just observing the people who shop your brand, but also just consumers in general? To me, that's the most challenging thing. You mentioned that government regulation and that's that's another question, I guess. But with with consumers in particular, food is easier because organic food people don't want to die. They think if they're eating stuff with chemicals, it's bad for them. So they're willing to spend a little bit more money or be more careful to get better food in many cases if they can afford it. But if they can afford if it, they can afford which is it. a major yeah. deal. Yes. But there is a, a large amount of people who can. They right. may be only a couple percentages of the but country. but Where you and I live, I live in Fort Greene. You go around the corner and... You can't get real food. The grocery store is not far from where we live. I have one around the corner from me. I make a right, I go to the store that doesn't have real food in it, and I go to the left, and I go to the store with organic food. And the price difference is monumental. So people aren't really getting food. No, true, but there are more options in food. For people with money. For for people with money, yes. For clothing... A, there is a thing about no one's like, I guess people are cutting out coupons for for the grocery store, but people are not waiting till the end to get the milk for 50 cents instead (laughs) of four bucks a pint or what have you. Whereas with fashion or with apparel just generally, if you pay full price or people almost feel like they're being suckered, that there's, there's this sense how... Do you see that shifting in consumer behavior, at least with consumer affluent consumers who can afford to make better decisions? All the things that you're trying to kind of instill in them. I, I don't know if I see it because I don't look anywhere. I don't shop. I don't really go outside of my little sphere. So, I mean, I see it with our customer. But they don't have a choice. If they're shopping with us, they're already, we've already determined how we're doing it. So they're buying that stuff. And if they want the thing for another reason, they're getting it's made well and responsibly by default. My suspicion is that most people, once they're given information, will try to make a better choice. Um, and certain things will affect that, like difficulty, you know, is it convenient or not? Is it cost-effective or not? And there are people who just don't care. They don't care what's going on behind the scenes. They just, they're still, you know, they're late. They're late to the party. They're still living in, like, 1985, and either they're not prepared to change or it's not fun enough for them to change, whatever. The, you know, some people are just overwhelmed, and this stuff is too hardcore for them, and they just want to enjoy their life. And... You know, on one day I look at those people and I think, well, you're just a terrible person and you're lazy and whatever. And then the next day I kind of feel like, well, you know, I feel bad. You know, that sucks if you feel that overwhelmed that you can't even address it. You know, it's sad. In terms of of what you want to do with your business, you have investors. What's the outcome that they're looking for? What outcome are you looking for? There's not a lot of money into my business. So... I have the majority of the business. Um, and I don't think the investors... One, 
I operate the whole thing, and that's just part of how it's set up. So there's not really a situation where they could tell me what they want to do or anything like that. But they're great. They're like the best people. <laughs> so like, the, you know, I don't think they invested in this business really to see a massive return. I genuinely think that they invested in the business because they wanted, they believed in it and they wanted to see what would happen and they wanted to see it happen. They were like, this should happen. And th most of them were pretty successful already. So like, it wasn't really a big deal for them, you know, um, it was a huge deal for me, you know, and, um, I expect one day I'm going to be able to kind of like, I don't really have the ability to show them my gratitude today. Hopefully one day I will to really be able to like make them understand how much it meant to me. Um, but I don't think they expect much. I think they just like watching this thing go because they're a little more from the other side of the business, the old ways, and they like seeing progress. And I think they probably watch it and to some degree learn from it as well. Um, and we haven't set any serious expectations either, which... Is a you know, it's a different way of thinking about it. I mean, if you think about it like this, the guy who owns the pizzeria, is he like setting these massive expectations for three years from now? He's like, I'm going to make what I make this year and support my family in making pizza. But maybe that's how it was like 20 years ago. But don't you feel like now the way the culture is, maybe we're at the end of this capitalist cycle? I think we absolutely are. Because it's like... At least in this form. Yeah. You, you start... And you think, oh, I got to sell this business because that's my pension or whatever, because right. there's no pension anymore. And then I'll get out and start a new thing. And even the pizzeria, I feel like, is is thinking that way in some ways. I don't, I, I don't know. I just feel like who says, you know, there's these conversations that you hear people having when they talk about businesses. If like, if you do 12 million this year and. 11-2 next year, you're a failure. And it's like, well, 11-2 is pretty good. Like, you know, like it depends on how many people you have. And like, like why can't it reduce and then grow again? Like, why can't you have like a really good year? And then not quite a good year, but it's okay. And then the next year you have a great year. Like, why can't you? Like, what's the big deal? It's interesting because the fact is you can. It's just... I don't know. Like, these these ideas have been built into business and people haven't been able to like really... I guess, think for themselves and break out of what they've been told are the rules, you know? What, you stopped your business for a while and restarted it, right? Well, I failed miserably the first so time. So what happened the first time <laughs> like, that you've done differently this time? I mean, there wasn't a lot of money there. And this was pre-internet. No opportunity to sell direct to consumer. And, you know, what's interesting about stores, like your own retail situation is like, it's really cost prohibitive. Like it's really easy to like build a sample collection and then show it to a bunch of big retailers. And if they buy it, cool. Maybe you can get some deposits to pay for the production and you're on your way. It costs a lot of money to open a store. So the first time I did it, it was still in that world of, you know, editors and buyers held all the cards. And from where I was standing at the time, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, and I tried, and <clears throat> I'm not a great business person organizationally. I think I have some vision in other ways, but I'm not 
organized. I'm not a good manager, you know. So it was just impossible for me to operate in that system where I have to deal with buyers. They have to give me orders. Editors have to like you in order to feature your product for anyone to see it. I mean, you had no communication with your customer directly. You had to rely on other people's version of what you were in their stores and how they spoke about it. And I'm just such a brand person that that doesn't suit me. So it was a disaster. It was a total bloodbath. And when you did it this time, did you open the store from the beginning? Yeah. 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 I mean, there was no doubt about what this was going to be. It was going to be retail, our own website, tiny bit of wholesale, maybe. You know, it was very clear. Is You're like a direct-to-consumer brand, but not of that ilk. So funny. Direct-to-consumer. I mean, I guess we are. Do a lot of young brands that are just starting out come to you and ask for advice on how to source and and do everything properly? I don't... I mean, people, if I'm in the room and they have the opportunity to ask me questions, they certainly do. Um, I don't... I don't know anymore what a young brand is. I don't know what that means anymore. Just mean... Because everybody has a brand now. Yeah. Just anyone starting out, are they coming to you and saying, I want to do all this stuff that you're doing responsibly? People people have. Yeah. I mean, generally the people that would have the nerve to come to somebody and say that is somebody bit younger, who has a lot more optimism and to some degree ignorance, but in a good way. Like they don't feel like, you know, like as you get older, you feel like more, there's more risk involved and you know more, which is kind of a bad thing. So young people will ask me questions all the time. They're not quite ready to do it yet. Like they're still in school or sometimes they're in high school even, you know, um, and they want to do these things and they ask questions, but not really ready to do it yet. They don't have any money or they're still living at home, whatever, you know. But older people are less inclined to ask because they have all their hangups. What do you think the big things are that the industry generally, that every company should be doing that a lot of them aren't? I mean, I've seen the environmental P&Ls of a lot of these businesses. I know what they are doing, but... What do you think they they aren't doing enough of that is is super important? I don't I don't really know. I mean, I don't I don't I don't know if it's my place to say what is or isn't important to the entire industry. Well, what are the most important things to you? The things we've been talking about. Like of course we want to be financially viable so we can support ourselves and the people who work in the organization but you know enjoying it feeling really good about the things we're doing creating great content and i don't just mean like creating great content isn't like it's successful content like it got a lot of likes like i just mean like really good whether fucking 20 people like it or 2 million it's just got to be good it's fun you know it's doing the stuff we love and being able to continue to do the stuff we love on a daily basis. You know, the music we play in the office and the fact that we all just get to, like, be kind of knuckleheads all day in the office as opposed to this really stiff situation, you know? Like, that's what's important to us. Um, and 
making sure that our success is other people's successes, whether you know if, whether that means sending money to the Bahamas to help those people because we were able to sell a lot of T-shirts or, you know, helping staff members pursue their interests, and whether it be painting or music or skateboarding, whatever it is, like, just not being fucking greedy, essentially. That's kind of what it comes down to. These people and businesses can do whatever the hell they want. Once you take greed out of the conversation, it opens up all kinds of incredible opportunities to have an interesting business. But if your primary goal and focus is to make as much money as possible, it pushes all these other things out of the way. You could decide to make something and make less money on it because you just want to see it out in the world, but not if the bottom line rules the day. But if you want to have fun, you can do it and make a little less money. <laughs> you know, Or like you want to help somebody somewhere so you can send money to that organization and that's less for you. But if you feel like, well, the economy of our business, you know, the way we think about economics and success is we're able to stay in business and grow while helping others or just doing fun things. I mean, that's kind of a really cool thing. You know? I think anti-greed is going to be a huge topic of conversation for the next couple of years. I mean, I hope so. I, I I don't know if it's possible. I think greed is, to some degree, just part of human nature. Um, there is a theory that I have that the population is split into actually good and bad. Like literally, the concept of good and evil has arisen from the fact that there's good people and bad people in the world. And that's just the way it's always going to be. And it's an ongoing struggle and war for as long as humankind exists. We're getting very deep <laughs> on the BOF podcast. We are. I mean, but that's, you know, that's a thought, right? Another thought, if you were to ask Estelle, for example, is that we are in constant evolution and we're just kind of infants as a civilization right now. And we will evolve to be much more, you know, intelligent, considerate, empathetic, whatever, as a species over time. Thank you for listening to Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear stories of sustainable entrepreneurship. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, biannual special print editions, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.